This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Scott. And I'm Paul. And we're going to talk about Tau Zero, a 1970s science fiction novel by, or maybe hard science fiction novel by Poole Anderson. Uh, this was originally published uh, as a novel, but there was a storylet or novelette. Uh, somebody said short story. It's not a short story. It's too long for that. It seems like that that little short one was not much shorter than the novel. No, it's a, it's a not novella at least I would say. Um, I didn't yeah. do the word count on it, but it's called To Outlive Eternity. It has the same mm-hmm. premise as the novel. It's just shorter. It's not novel length, right? So it could have been probably done as an ace double, um, just as it was, um, but. What do you think about the title being a quote-unquote spoiler for the um, actual novel's premise or the, the novel's outcome? Is that I'm sorry, you you, Jesse. You, you disappeared for a moment oh, there, no. and I didn't hear. Yeah, now yeah. you're back, but oh, I, weird. I missed. Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I was I was saying, what do you think about the title of the sh- the novella being damaging to the end? Of the novel being a spoiler, and it it, it 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 definitely flags what's going to happen at the end in a way that Tau Zero, which is a nice hard geeky uh, scientific mathematical concept, does not reveal what's actually going to happen at the end of the novel. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I was uh, surprised by <laughs> that end. You know, I was surprised by a lot of stuff in there, but um, I could see it yeah, coming. If it, had been, if it had been called to outlive eternity, I would. Uh, yeah, it would have been, been much easier to to see, right? Yeah. I, I I was yeah. about I, I was about halfway through the book, uh, or a little more than halfway through the book, and I think I think I know how this is going to end. Didn't quite end exactly as I had uh, thought, because I and I was thinking about why, especially like this morning, I was thinking about why mm-hmm. it didn't end exactly. And that's because I think he wants to keep it a hard science fiction novel and not some sort of, you know, hard science fiction novel then suddenly turns into a fantasy. <laughs> because uh, it's not Earth, right? It's not Earth that they, they end up on. It's not uh, Earth 2. It's, no. There's dragons, right? Um, <laughs> but also, uh, if, you, if you care at all about this little thing called, like, genetics... You might want to notice, you know, these are uh, not the same, you know, they didn't evolve on that planet. And we would notice that if that was us and all that stuff. But I think there's still some resonance there with, uh, obviously, with uh, the no, not Noah's Ark story, the Genesis. Genesis. It's a new new Genesis, a new Eden. Except there are a few dozen rather than two people trying to create a new earth well, he's trying to keep mm-hmm. it plausible i guess plausible yeah, yeah i mean he definitely tried to make this this novel as hard as he could possibly make it and i mean he misses a few things but he didn't know about them at the time well let me illustrate for example we didn't really understand too much about the cosmic background radiation in 1967 I, at, at the speeds 
them, passengers would probably all have been fried by cosmic background radiation being blue shifted and turning it turning into uh, X-rays and killing them all. Well, isn't that what the shield that that that's what the um, the shield of the uh... of the front, but not the back. It'll come from the back and kill them. Yeah, but it's a magnetic field, right? It, right, but it's, but it's not globular. It's more like a, a ramming shield in front. It's not completely enveloping the ship. Right. So anything anything from behind or the side. I didn't do enough research to to counter your your theory, but um, I mean, uh, I, uh, what I read about Bassard ramjets not being so good is they they I think when they're talking about them in the '60s, um, they didn't know how much interstellar hydrogen there was and uh they overestimated i think and 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 there are drag effects i mean i mean i did some research on this too and you probably could get to about a tenth of light speed with a bussard ramjet not 99.9999 percent of light speed you just you just can't get there with this technology but 10 percent of light speed is not uh not inconsiderable for trying to actually try to make a go of visiting a near star but actually trying to go beyond the Boundaries of the universe, yeah. Unfortunately, that's you can't do it with a Bussard ramjet. It's a nice, it's a nice idea because, I mean, I mean, with with the knowledge he had at the time, I mean, you get going enough, fast enough, and he goes this in great detail in the novel. I mean, you'll know, re- readers and listeners, if you want to know how a Bussard ramjet would work in theory, this is the novel to read because Paul Anderson will explain it to you in <laughs> in world building, loving detail that. That maybe some people don't like, but I was like, oh my god, I remember this. Yes, yes. Oh, mm-hmm. that's right. Because ramjet really gets going, it gets going. Yeah, and, and yeah. self is a self-sustaining sort of thing, which and eventually, yeah, because of the, because of the issues with the uh, with 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 the breakdown, they just got to keep going faster and faster, and wind and wind up uh, outliving the universe as a result. Yeah, I think that the main scientific thing that I was thinking as I read it is, I, I think it's a fairly common belief right now that um, the big crunch is not going to happen. Correct. Right. right. So that that's the main thing. But again, you know, new information may come to light that puts that back on the table of the future. It's all theoretical, right? Mm-hmm. It is all theoretical, but yeah, but the current science says that. Thanks to the amount of dark matter in the universe and and dark energy, the universe is actually flying apart ever faster, and it's not going to come back in a big crunch. So they couldn't outlive the universe. If this, if you tried to write this novel today, assuming they could get to the uh, that super speeds, they would just keep going until there was nothing left of the universe except dark dying stars and that's a really really and Paul Anderson is not exactly a happy-go-lucky sort of author if you have noticed mm-hmm. I mean, that, that'd be that'd be even sadder and darker than usually Paul Anderson would have gotten it's like oh yeah we, we sell into eternity eternity is a eternity of nothingness the end that I don't think even Paul Anderson would go try to write that novel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah. uh, this isn't the only thing that's dealt with in the book you know the the premise being, you know, they're on a rammer headed headed to another solar system for colonization, and it goes wrong. And I I, I like that it, it's a disaster book sort of. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, it's definitely a disaster book. I, I I made note of it. Uh, I think it was two and a half to three hours in to this seven hour book 
that the uh, actual disaster sort of happens, which is a lot of time. You know, it's all not quite half, but it's pretty deep into the book, 40% into the book before the actual disaster happens. And this is a book that I was like, why am I reading this? This is so 60s. Ugh. <laughs> Like, one of the things, like, I was thinking, like, he doesn't sell it well at the beginning. And honestly, I think also part of the issue is the narrator is not very good. Um, did you both listen to the narration? I did. I listened to part of it. Yeah, but yeah. I, I had the same reaction. I ended up reading the print. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because um, I'm trying to figure out who the narrator was. But, um, oh, 7.75 7. hours. Okay, so the narrator, whoever he is, um, he's actually he's at his best when he's doing this, the the singing of the poetry, which mm. uh, I was like, well, why is that better? Um, but he's doing it sort of a conspiratorial voice, um, and uh, maybe it's the sentence lengths are not conducive to his style. All Neil Helliger's, um, which sounds like a scandinavian name so maybe he's doing it right <laughs> i don't know but uh yeah i had to listen to the start like i think three times to just try and have the words penetrate my skull mm. mm -hmm. but once the um once the disaster finally happens um i was okay with the book and as it gets i was thinking like is he, did he do it this way on purpose? That has a very slow start and then it gains momentum. <laughs> you know, the ending is like uh, rushing at you, and then literally the last scene is is very abbreviated, right? Which is not, I, I, I think, good. I, I I I do I do think Paul Anderson wasn't good enough of a stylist that yeah I think he could have ran it that way. Okay, I I okay I will make this. I will make the format of this novel mirror the actual increasing speed of of the ramjet, and so we'll start off slow, but but by the end we're I mean by by the end they're flying by things in minutes, and we're just getting billions of years of time and days on the ship just flashing by, and then suddenly up oh, we're past the monoblock, and now we're going to land on a planet. We're on the planet. The end. Yeah. <laughs> now I yep. I want to point out that um the uh, the the original novella um, starts 10 years into the journey, which I think would be probably a right when the disaster's getting ready to happen, right? Um, if, if it follows the, um, the premise. And then the, under the title, which is To Outlive Eternity, it says, they were doomed to roam space through all eternity while the world of men died behind them. That is uh, more evidence that people don't actually or didn't actually care about spoilers right in in those <laughs> days that was a selling feature right, right it's like <laughs> this is the way you you get interested in reading it um now i assume that it ends similarly uh oh. given that the title is to outlive eternity but uh i'm i'm also i'm like what am i doing when they're not doing disaster stuff or or you know, uh, technical explanation. It's, I was thinking like, is this the other element of science fiction that was being dealt with a lot within the sixties, which is birth control. Is that really what all of this is about? The, the, the consequences of, 
of the pill? I don't know. I don't know about that either. Um, well, you two Catholic boys should know all about this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Lap's Catholic, but uh-huh. I, I, I mean, I mean, there's there's all sorts of discussions of ethics of relationships, and because yes. because in that in, in the early for, format, they're really concerned about you know making sure that there's exactly 25 men and 25 women because they do want. They do want actually some sort of decent uh, were dynamic it written expression. Today, were it written today, that would not be the uh, the gender stuff that they were talking about, right? The, not equal representation, but rather, um, you know, uh, do we even need men on this ship or something like that? No, uh, no. Just, that, that's just, actually just more, 70s, being, more 70s. More uh, yeah, 70s. It's being um, really unfair to today's science fiction. No, no. no I, I think, see, I think there's something going on in the 60s. Like, I, I read a lot of 60s science fiction. I, I disliked a lot of 60s science fiction because they deal with this a lot. And it's in here a lot. Like, the jealousy that comes out in the final scene as well, right? Um, sexual jealousy, worry about, um, you know, who's cheating on who. And for a novel that has a lot of talk about, you know, relationships... It doesn't have any sex scenes, which I kind of like, but there's too many conversations about who's sleeping with who and what the uh, amount of time of, you know, who's who needs to be in a relationship with who. If it's not dealing with the fact that, you know, they can control their I mean, there's a whole subplot about a lady getting pregnant, right? Yeah, I guess yes. I guess I see what you're saying. Um, kind of a sexual revolution thing where exactly where he's talking about, um, you know, uh, we can't have jealousies like that in this 50 person group of people, and everybody should be allowed to sleep with everybody else, right? Without any of that jealousy, and is that possible? And because it was new to the world when he wrote this, exactly, it was new to the people that were on the ship. A novel for and the people. And today, it, I guess. today you're saying if it was written today, that would not be new to the people no. today. So it wouldn't be as focused. It, okay, it absolutely would not be the focus. And if 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 you want to so, like if if you are doing a generate, it's not a generation starship. If you are doing a colonization program, you really only need a couple of a couple of dudes, right? Um, because unless you have artificial wombs, you know, this is something Heinlein has dealt with as well, but he was de- dealing with it with the 50s stuff in a, a different kind of way. And other, like if Larry Niven's done stuff like this too, right? Um, he's dealt with it in a, in a slightly different kind of way. There's a lot of, uh, psychology in here. I, I almost thought I was reading a Frederick Pohl novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not gateway. I mean, if it's at some points, it feels like, as they're talking about, about oh okay who's depressed and we got to keep him alive and not killing himself because if he kills himself then everybody else will kill right. themselves Sensory as well. Sensory deprivation things mm-hmm. to yeah and and the captain's not doing well and right like and it, it, I, there's a well, whole bunch I, of I, secrets. Uh, the, you let somebody in on a secret and then that makes them less depressed or something. I I don't understand what what it's all well, about. But there's a lot of stuff that isn't about the the hard SF element. You notice. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got to fill. He's got to fill those pages somehow. He can't just have 180 <laughs> pages of the mechanics of relativistic time flight as much as he might want to, and how much I might actually want to read. It doesn't make a story. But I think 
just as a small point, I think the reason why the captain gets shuffled off stage is so that Raymond can take a primary role because he's not a, he's not high in the hierarchy as we start this novel. He I mean he's just really a glorified security officer, but so, so in order to have him be front and center of the action, that's why we have to have the captain sort of take a back seat so that he can basically step up. Yeah, I, I honestly the characters are so bad. <laughs> I mean, I was I, I I stopped keeping track of them. I I was like, uh, I I'm maybe I don't remember Paul Anderson's long stuff at all. I only remember short stories uh, of his, and he can do sh- short story characters. But we've got 25 men, men tw- 25 women, but we only get I think names of maybe 10 or something like that. Yeah, so, something like that. Um, but it's too many, <laughs> and. If I feel like, like it, this should have just stayed as a short story or a novella, because of that. Um, well, it was still a very short novel. I know you know? that's but, the uh, thing, but I, right? I, I I agree with you, and you know, as I think about the book, um, by far the more interesting parts to me were when things were happening in the to the ship and what was going on there, and then when they'd flip back to. Um, the lives of the people on board. There was a lot of stuff in there that was not interesting to me. A few eye rolling things um, that are, you know, because I'm, you know, uh, what 50 years ago is when he wrote it, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're, you're like, you know, he says uh, there was actually a point where he said, and even the women would be able to do this, you know, and I'm just, that was, that was like a, a moment there. So, um, but there was a lot of things that I just wasn't interested in, um, and I thought was odd, you know, here we are on this ship and, and they're, you know, on the ship, they're concerned. They're like, okay, well, we got to have a party at this time and there's going to have to be booze. It's all, it's all very kind of a, a logical thing. These are human needs and, mm-hmm. and we need to set up these human needs and we need to do this, but you know, there's only 50 people there. Um, it's not like they're dealing with a mass of, uh, you know, thousands of people, and they got to make sure they supply this stuff. Um, but a lot of that was uninteresting to me. And then they even got to where, uh, you know, when the captain withdrew and the reasons for that, you know, he had to be isolated so that people could be uh, angry at him or whatever, you it's know, the advice first. that just, it just yeah. didn't ring true to me at all. It didn't, you know, but I think that there would be an awfully good story to tell about the people that were going through that pressure yeah, I think it's told um, I don't from know that this the wrong is it, point of but view. But I really loved all the all of the stuff about the ship, all the hard science fiction, all the ooh wow stuff. Really mm-hmm. worked for me, and I really loved all of that. There, there is a book that uh, I was reminded of, and I, I only read it once, and it was a long time ago. But I found it to be amazing, um, and it's I th- I want to say it's from 1980, but it's probably not. Um, no, it can't be from 1980. Uh, 1999? No, that's oh 1990. There we go. So it's 20 years after um, uh, Tau Zero. It's by Robert J. Sorry, it's his first novel um, called Golden Fleece. Golden Fleece, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, what I like about Golden Fleece is it's a hard science fiction story set on a ship where they are going on a journey and they don't get to their destination, right? So it's it's got a similar setup. Um, There are things happening on board the ship, but it's a murder mystery, and it's told from the point of view of the AI on the ship, which 
uh, eliminates a lot of the sexual boring stuff, um, but also get gets almost like a third person narration, um, and I just remember it being like this is exactly what I want. I want hard science fiction. I want uh, you know some reason to care, um, and I I think like this it's relatively short. Uh, now um, I have subsequently noticed that Sawyer is not the greatest guy with character either um but uh, honestly until the disaster starts this plot has nothing of interest to me <laughs> i was like whoa what I, swede swedes in space is not something that yeah i mean you're uh, a big fan of I, I i get that they had some sort of disaster on earth and they you now they gave the swedes the power to decide everything um and there's a bunch of people hanging out at cafes and um, yeah, that was that was actually interesting in itself. When you know that I, little I, I, conversation, I would have liked to have a whole novel about that sort of idea. Okay, so apparently we had maybe a close close to a nuclear war, but not quite. And so we decided, okay, we'll we'll have Sweden in charge of of nuclear disarmament and stuff. And there's little hints at the beginning there about how the United States is not happy with this and other countries are starting to look towards Sweden and the whole, oh, Sweden's going to become the Roman Empire sort of, well, they got the guns, so they have the they mm. have the, the, the cultural and political and social power. And it's like, damn, damn, why didn't you give me an article on that? Well, I would he does a lot. Of, he's obsessed. It's, it's weird because he's a major figure in science fiction, right? And there isn't this. There isn't a representative, uh, you know, who's going after some cultural uh, love the way he goes after. Like he always is interested in talking about Scandinavian stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter what he writes, it's like, can I get some Scandinavian stuff I've been reading about in here? Um, you don't have like some guy who's always uh, after, you know, Ireland, 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 right? You know, Roger yeah. Zelazny will write a story that has some, you know, bit of Irish myth or something in it. Uh, but he doesn't, he's not uh, constantly obsessed. And because Poole Anderson is so prolific and so um, well-known, we get sort of a, a overly uh, representative love of... So fear not, Scott, uh, fear not, Paul, there's lots of other books that you can read more about his love of Scandinavia. No, 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 but, but, no, Iceland, but I'm talking you know? about no, but I'm talking about like the. I know that I've read I've read a ton of Poole Anderson stuff. Yeah. But well, what I'm just saying, I was more interested in how this world was developing and what that what this particular world would be like with us with a Sweden suddenly thrust upon it with military, social, and cultural power. And also, also this. I mean, he only mentions it in one line, but this also tags into Poole Anderson's interest in the history of the Roman Empire, which we see at greater length in his um in his big uh uh polziotechnic leagues and the uh the empire novels where basically the, the latter novels with dominic flandry are basically all about an analogy to the fall of the roman empire and dominic flandry trying to keep the empire together by by hook and by crook just to keep civilization going mm-hmm. yeah excellent i've actually got um the uh what did you call the the, the psychotechnic psychotechnically? Oh, well, no, 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 no. There's, there's here's people going to get confused. There are two different series he has. He has the psychotechnic league, which are basically a strand where we get world government and 
all the all the consequences that fall from that. I, that's the one you probably have since they just started reissuing them. And, yeah, and then I've there's got, the Postal Technic League, which is basically space traders in space eventually become a human empire in space, which then starts to fall just like the Roman Empire did. Ah, okay. Two, diff- two different future histories. Man, I've got because, so much of this guy to explore. I mean, I, he's I written and written great. I told you that some months ago. There's a ton of Paul Anderson for people yeah, to read. Yeah. So I've got those. I've got the first two volumes. They're they're thin, but the complete Psychotechnic League Volume One and Two that are just recently released by Bain. Yeah, there, there's uh, some. I think really, three just came out. So there's some really good stories in the Psychotechnic League. Mar- Maris is a really good story. There's, yeah. a, there's a few others that. Sh- I mean, eventually, he gave up on that universe and went very much into the Polio Technic League instead. But for a while, he's writing in both universes, and yeah, they they're both have plenty of stuff for readers to go into depending on what kind of pool Anderson you want. Cool. I, cool. Uh, I want to point out that the novel uh, doesn't start this way. I don't think, but the, um, the short story does it says, uh, or the novella starts. Lenora Christine was in the 10th year of her journey when grief came upon her. So it sounds like some lady, right? That's the name. Uh, of the uh, ship. Uh, 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 yeah, and there's a real person named Leonardo. Exactly, and that's what—that's uh, you know not an accident. She's a Scandinavian figure from history who was imprisoned uh, for a long time and wrote her biography in prison, and it is super famous in uh, Scandinavia, Scandinavia, especially in Denmark, right? And um, that's uh, has some resonance for the plot right these are a bunch of people trapped on a spaceship right yep. it's their prison and eventually they are hoping for release but um she apparently i haven't read this document that she wrote but apparently um talks about her faith in her religion and her destiny and and um you know and the, the difficulty of you know being imprisoned uh, the, the pain of isolation and all that stuff. So I can see resonances throughout the book um, in that, in especially you know the non-hard science fiction scenes of him paying homage to this idea. Mm-hmm. Did you guys note that there is another inspiration for this book? It's, Which inspiration um, is that? There's a poem. Um, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, there was a poem in in the novel. Is that what you mean? Uh, is it that well, one? I think there's yeah, there's a couple of songs in the and poems in the novel, but I'm trying to find it here on the Wikipedia entry. Ah, here it is. The storyline of the of the book here is similar to a long poem and later opera called Aniara, in which a ship was unable to stop and doomed to travel endlessly. Um, so this is a a very long poem uh, written. Cool. Uh, by a Swedish Nobel laureate, laureate, and it's science fiction, obviously, um, written in 1956. So obviously, Poole Anderson would be well aware of it. Um, mm. And it, uh, I'll just read part of the Wikipedia entry here. Aniara is an effort to mediate between science fiction, uh, science and poetry, between the wish to understand and the difficulty to comprehend. Martinson translates scientific imagery into the poem. For example. The, quote, curved space from Einstein's general theory of relativity is likely an inspiration for Martinson's depiction of the cosmos as a, quote, a glass, a bowl of glass, 
Martinson also said he was influenced by Dirac, and it is 103 cantos long, so not short, right? And uh, it tells, uh, it has a different ending, and you know, it doesn't have all the characters, but it's uh, a generation starship or rammer style ship traveling through space endlessly, unable to stop. And uh, that's what we got here, right? That's cool. It so it's basically, yeah, a, basically a prose rewriting of Ananara. Interesting. I did not know that fact about Tau Zero. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's influenced by stuff, right? He really did. He likes reading his, his uh, Scandinavian. Uh, I'm, I, yeah, his yeah, I knew he's influenced by Islamic, by uh, Scandinavian sagas and that sort of myth and legends. You can see stuff like that in, uh, like, say, Three Hearts and Three Lions, but mm-hmm. I didn't realize he'd been influenced by essentially contemporary Scandinavian literature as well. Mm-hmm. It's a really pro- prolific writer. I mean, it's it was rare to find an issue of Planet Stories without his name on the cover. Um, and he wrote for a long time, too. Weirdly and oddly, this is kind of a sidebar, one of his last novels was actually the first novel of his I read, and that was Boat of a Million Years. Hmm. And I, and I, and I saw lots oh, of boat. Lots of, I thought you said boat. bone. No, boat of a million years. Yeah, and, I've heard of that. Yeah, and I mean, I saw blurbs from people who <laughs> like up uh, authors I like. So, oh, this this sounds interesting. Let me pick this up. Like, oh man, this is great. What more can I read of Paul Anderson? Lots, yeah. as it turns <laughs> out. Lots. Wow. Wow. And the other thing that is interesting and is um, that. This came out in 1970. It was nominated for an award, as usual, yeah, right? Yeah, it was nominated for Hugo. And <clears throat> lost to Larry Niven and Ringworld, which mm. you can see why. Although they're both hard SF novels, um, Ringworld is all a hard SF, right? All yeah. uh, The relationship stuff is there, but... You know, it's, it's relatively minimal. Yeah, it's relatively min- minimal. Um, it, you know, there is a sense that maybe this guy's going to be lost forever on this planet. And uh, uh, but there's aliens, which which were more characteristically interesting. I think. Uh, you know, you don't normally turn to Larry Nan and say, "I love characters." You know, that's no, not you're like I love his aliens is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, you like Nathan. you like his aliens and you like his his scale of ideas. His ideas, yeah, but not yeah, but yeah, but yeah. Oh. But I, I I can imagine this having won had not Ringworld been in the running that year. You know, uh, given that it's it's a competent novel and it's got a big it's got a big idea at its core and they really like this this you know exploration of what did how did you put it scott reproductive uh sexual revolution that's it sexual revolution yeah. reproductive uh, wh- freedom or something right right yeah. what else was up for hugo that year let's see um a hell clip oh a late Hal Clement novel named Starlight. So maybe, maybe not, that one. but that's, that's, that's really late in his career though. Um, a Robert Silverberg tower of glass and William Tucker's the year of the quiet sun. Another one I haven't heard of the books that uh, it's, it's, I was surprised to see Tau zero, um, being a new audiobook. That was really exciting. 
came out in 2016. This is one you picked, right, Scott? Yeah, yeah, I picked uh, out of int- continued interest in exploring Paul Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, this one and uh, the next one I want to read is um, Three Hearts, Three Lions that uh, Paul mentioned earlier. Right. Yeah. It's another one which, that's on which, my which list. Will, yeah, which we see how Paul Anderson takes myth legends and uh, stuff like all good stuff like that and puts a his own sort of twist on them. I don't want to say too much about it because, you know, cool. Yeah. That, I mean, that's probably, I like that more than tower zero. I mean, don't get me wrong. Tower zero, tower zero is an excellent novel. I mean, I I love a lot of plans, but I do like three hearts and three lions. Yeah. Three hearts and three lions is also on audio and, uh, fantastic. It's narrated by Bronson Pinchot. Mm. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's probably not, a, not, a good narrative. Can we put there. that on the list? <laughs> well, here's the problem. Here's I remember problem. you weren't a fan. You weren't a fan of the Broken Sword. Yeah, I, see, shit, I, I shit all over that, the so. Broken Sword, yeah, and and I I think I have a problem with Paul Anderson. Is what it is. Uh, I rem- you know I used to collect a lot of audiobooks that were short stories that were available, and there would always be a Paul Anderson in there. And I'd listen to them, and there's some of the, some of them be okay, but I'm never really like connected with him in a way that makes me love his prose. Like mm-hmm. I can't, uh, you know, I've read Flandry, Flandry that's him, right? That, yeah, Dominic Flandry. Yeah, that's, so yeah. that's I've read Flandry stories, but I would, if you, you know, gave me a list, you say Jesse pick six, right? And the list includes uh, Niven, Zelazny, uh, I don't know, Ellison. Uh, Paul, you know, I'd put I'd put Anderson at the bottom, not because he's terrible, just because I I never really connect with him for some reason. I don't know why I don't know why that is. Well, yeah, I I think I agree with you. I hadn't really connected with Paul Anderson until lately, and um, but everything that we've read by him, I have connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, you can put what on was the, the schedule, what was the first but I, I don't think I should be a, on it because I, I was won't. it like a comedy? Uh, what was the what was that called? I'm sorry, I can't recall the name, the title, but the the one where aliens come down and it's a medieval world that they, they oh, that was pretty and, funny. Yeah, yeah the that was yeah the high crusade. The high crusade. Yes, yeah. loved it. That was that was, just, that was pretty funny. Yeah, that was great. And then the give me another sword, comedy, maybe I can go with that. <laughs> and the broken sword was terrific. And then um, this book, um, if I had to give it stars, it'd probably be three, three and a half. Um, I, I, again, I love the hard science fiction aspects of it. The ooh wow stuff really captured me. I was really interested in that, and then I was less interested in what was going on in the ship at the time. There's not, there's not as much of that so as like, there should be. It's though, like right? uh, five stars for the idea, yeah. and then three stars for the characters and everything. So it'd be somewhere in between there. Yeah. Um, but the Broken Sword, I absolutely love that book. That's terrific. Hmm. So maybe Three Hearts and Three Lions will be good. And then um, the Psychotechnic League is something else I'm interested in looking That's a at. huge series, though, right? No, no, you're thinking the Polzio Technic League is a huge oh. series. The Psychotechnic <laughs> yeah, League right. are just I'm a bunch confused. of stories which are, yeah. which don't really share any characters. They're just like set in the future history, whereas the Polzio Technic League... Which one get, is Flandry? Is that another series? That's, Pol- that's Polzio Technic, okay. not Psychotech. Yeah. I wanted to mention to you guys, um, there was a story that I really loved, and, and I just looked it up. Um, that I realize is sort of on the same lines. Um, it was in one of the Writers of the Future volumes, and the reason I remember it really well, um, 
it was one that I reviewed for SFF Audio a long time ago, Writers of the Future, Volume 23. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the – Audible published it. And it was one of the first you know, anthologies that were coming out on audio. It was back in 2007. But in there is a story called Primetime by – and I had that called Sounds up familiar. here. His name uh, – Douglas – let's see. What did I do with it? There it is. Douglas Texter. And um, so what it is, it's not a very long story, but man, it was really affecting. But it was about a guy who, uh, he was a like a reality TV producer or a cameraman, if I remember right. And he would get in, you know, a little time machine and go back in time and, and video stuff from history and they'd show it on TV. And, um, but something happened and he couldn't get out of the time machine, which had been set to move into the future Uh, and uh, he uh. couldn't get out and it moved into the future like forever (laughs) Uh. and at a fairly quick pace. So, you know, as long as he could survive in this little bubble, he was alive watching history pass and it passed and it it must've been exponential because he, he was, uh, he was witnessing like uh, the death of the universe and things. I've got a, a post I, I did I, I, on this in in 2007. Mm-hmm. A very, very short story from L. Ron Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future, Volume 23. Uh, free listen of the week from November 29, 2007. You can oh, listen wow. online, it says, but uh, when I do the link, it doesn't work. It's only 10 minutes long, this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quote, a gripping story that takes reality TV to a whole new dimension through time travel. You can climb into the trenches of the First World War and battle death with soldiers through the lens of a camera, held by the time-traveling journalist who is reporting on history as it unfolds before him. There's only one catch. If the reporter doesn't pull out in time, he gets terminated by the show's producer. According to network policy, prime time becomes the time trap you can't escape. Mm. Scott, I got news for you, though. Yeah. Your, your story that you talked about, mm-hmm. um, Paul Anderson did that story in 1955. It's actually did one of my, really? It's actually one of my favorite Paul Anderson stories. It's called Flight to Forever. It's about a guy who invents a time machine, and he discovers that going backwards in time takes a lot more energy than going forward in time. And it turns out you can't go backwards more than a hundred years. So eventually he finds he can't get back home. So he keeps going forward into the future to try to find a way to get back to his present. And mm. he, 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 he picks up a companion a few hundred years. Hence he winds up going into the far future where he helps a, uh, a star empire out. And I'm going to spoil the story. Spoilers. He does finally get back home by going all the way through the end of the universe and back to the beginning and back to uh, his home wow. timeline. That's um, it's, it, it, it's a novel it, too, and a really good novel um, by uh, Joe Haldeman called "The Accidental Time Machine." Time Machine, yes. It, then, uh, yeah, when I, I've read that, and that was clearly inspired by Paul Anderson's story. It's a really too. good. It's love a really it, good novel. So. Yeah, th- cool. so I, I, I mean, I, I was thinking of flight to, flight to forever as I was li- re-listening to Tal Zero here. I was thinking of having to go ever forward to the future, not being able to go back to where you belong, and eventually going past the, the end of the universe itself. It's so this so Paul Anderson's done this idea twice: once with time travel and once with, uh, once with uh, space travel. 
I want to. I want to. I'm going to find that. Go back and touch on the novel before we uh, leave it completely and enter yeah. a new galaxy or a new solar system or a new uh, universe. <laughs> Listen, um, we just need to go out this far, then we can turn around and come back. That's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> our tau is approaching zero here. <laughs> um, it is. <laughs> so one of the themes that I did like a little bit um, in the non-hard SF elements of tau zero was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm interested to see what you guys think of it because um, it it's it's there and it's maybe the whole purpose of the novel in a certain sense um, is meaning right. One of the problems they have besides being distantly far from the planet Earth that they're never coming back to, which they always thought they, you know, if they're successful, they're never co- going back to Earth anyways, but. Um, they would still have, you know, be able to think about people back on Earth and what they're doing. Um, at one point in the novel, somebody's super depressed, and and they're thinking about how there's no meaning to anything. Like, what are we, what are we doing? And and then somebody finally has a baby, and and they're thinking about that. And I was thinking it's interesting because. Um, really, their journey on the spaceship is of no value in itself, right? The whole point was to get to their destination. And it's like it's like when you're on the bus heading to work on your commuter job, right? You don't think, I have great value here on the bus. The whole point of the trip is not to experience the bus trip. It's to get to work so that you can mm-hmm. earn the money and then return home and keep your... Your your regular goals in order, and that's why a short story, you know, by Philip K. Dick, where they get a commuting device that allows you to instantly travel to your work, is not like a really um, controversial idea. Everybody would like that, right? Nobody says, you know, I love commuting. <laughs> Nobody says commuting has great value. Now, the thing is, is when you're actually traveling, you know, you're going to Europe and you're traveling around the city um, and you look out from the bus window uh, at, the, at the buildings go by and, and what the people are doing and all that stuff. And, and you even talk with the people on the bus, a lot of whom will be commuters. Um, you do have meeting there, right? There's a great meaning for you. Because, first of all, it's all new. And second of all, that was the point of it, was the journey. Now, here, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that the, the answer is all that clear, right? As, as clear as I just put it with the, the you know, traveling on the uh, Paris metro and seeing all the people who live in Paris and are just getting to work. I don't think it's all... You know, for you, as a you know, visitor to Paris, that has meaning... But I don't think that he's wrong in bringing this topic up. Did you guys feel feel this in the book and think that a lot of the existential angst that everybody's suffering from is because they don't have meaning? And that all the all those party plannings and and I think about that opening scene about how it's so boring is sort of the same thing, right? It's like they don't have meaning here, right? There's a celebrity who's at the at the I don't know cafe and is it is it just underdeveloped in the book because of all this talk about who's sleeping with who? <laughs> well, it is a really interesting subject, right? Um, Very interesting. You know, we we can look at you know our own lives and 
you know, when you have sort of a goal in mind and you're headed toward that goal and things are kind of, you know, you're ignoring everything that's going on around you while you're headed for this goal. And then you get to the goal and it's kind of lonely there. You know what I mean? So it's, again, you know, the journey has to be meaningful, Mm -hmm. which is really, I think, a, a key thing. Um, you know, I'm in my own life, I'm often, you know, waiting, well, after this, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that happens all the time, you know, and then you get past that and you're on to the next thing or whatever. But, um, but it is an interesting thing. It's like, okay, well, what our purpose is, is to go to the star and then we're going to report back and that's going to be meaningful for, for all of humanity. Sure. And then they, yep. they, they take that away and now they're on their own with no hope of contacting humanity ever again. And then it's a shift of, okay, now that that's removed, um, what is the meaning? And there's a and I would have to say, that, yeah, it was aging, underdeveloped. Right? Yeah, I agree that it's underdeveloped and there would there'd be a lot to explore there. Um, but uh, You need a breakthrough of some kind for the characters. Right, right, yeah. I, 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 yeah, go for it, Paul. Yeah, yeah because, because they... They do explore explore this idea like, okay, I mean, we have all hobbies and stuff, but what's the point of ever doing any of them because no one's ever going to report anything. Who are they going to fight with with those those foils, right? They're going to get down on that planet and start fighting the aliens? I was hoping that that was actually going to happen. And maybe that's that's the, you know, with the dragons there now that, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, and, And I guess the meaning that they found at the end was, in progeny it was like we're going to we now have we're going to pass all this knowledge that we have down yeah it's an interestingly religious book right yeah yeah i mean i guess it could be looked at that way but it could be looked at as not religious too i think uh well that's that's the thing with all the uh, sexual revolution stuff right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. that's certainly in i mean there's a whole uh abortion debate (laughs) as well um and I, I was like, I don't remember Poole Anderson being overtly uh, um, religious, uh, you know. Well, yeah, hold stuff. on a sec. What, what do you, what do you see as the abortion debate? Like when, well, when she wanted to, she wanted to have a child, right? She, against the rules, she had. Against the rules, she seven wanted to have pregnant, that. Right? But I don't see that as an abortion debate. That was, that was her feeling like she wanted to do that and. And uh, things are getting pretty hopeless they here. If I want to do that, maybe I should do that. They were, no, she literally got pregnant, right? Seven months pregnant. Right. They find out right. about it. And then they say, well, should we abort it? And and then they said, well, we could make an accident, right? Like literally trying to figure out how to deal with the problem of resources and stuff, right? So yeah. there is a, a an actual debate that happens. Uh, okay, in the, in I, I guess book. I just don't see that as, you know, quote, an abortion debate. Unquote, a specific it was like, abortion. Yeah, it was right like a, a rule-breaking, you know, whatever. Well, the, you know, they, they have the capability of giving her an abortion. I was thinking, one of one, there was a funny line somewhere in this book about saying, you know, what is our progeny going to have? It's, they're going to be surrounded by, like, earwax and toenails, right? <laughs> because yeah, they're yeah. running out of phosphorus and you know the the thing is is you cannot uh increase the population infinitely on a finite yeah on a, in a right? finite yeah. ship yeah um, that's made for 50 people right uh, and yeah and also you know they don't even have 100 percent efficiency in their their recycling uh, yeah recycling so systems. yeah so i mean really what that was was a discussion about resources and stuff and also meaning right so um 
I believe the way they... I, I can't remember because I, I... Honestly, I, I, I would lose track of stuff every once in a while. But um, <laughs> one, of, one of the things that happened was they, they decided to allow uh, uh, a limited number of births, right? And... Uh, yeah, they 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 decided they would. They said, "Let's let um, anybody who wants to have a baby have one, and we think that it will be very few." Yeah, they didn't say. Let's say the, they'd do a lot, like draw lots. Well, they people. said they would draw lots if it turned out to be too many, but they, I think only two uh, did, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So, but the the thing is, is that is usually how people in regular life. Um, find great meaning in their own lives this is how people have been you know you've had kids scott mm-hmm. you sure, i think man. you i think you found meaning in doing that right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. um paul and i as far as i know paul doesn't have any kids running around no i don't okay so, so paul and i uh obviously haven't found meaning in that yet uh but um i can see why someone would 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 do that and i think that there's something going on in a book where it's on this epic time scale, you really have to. I just yeah, I can, I can certainly understand this? why someone would feel that way and feel like you know, hey, the end is rushing towards us, and yeah. uh, this is something that I've wanted all my life. I should go ahead and do that. And um, she she uh, turns out okay, right? But, yeah, but I, mean, I think, I think that you're right, though. I mean, it's, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff to explore there, and it was just altogether too short. <laughs> no, no, no! Right? Too much time I spent. I think it was, it was so. I, I think it's underdeveloped. I think you could. It have is underdeveloped. A, a pretty, absolutely. You, know, you could have a philosophical novel, really, around these ideas in this situation. No, there, there was a lot of there was a, a number of duplicate what is it, scenes. What is, what is meaning? You know what? Mm-hmm. You know, it's meaning something we give what ourselves. What is purpose? Yeah. yeah. What is the purpose? What is mm-hmm. the? It's a perfect setting in which to explore that because. That's one of the things that science fiction does so well is, you know, it, it removes, it lets us look at humanity in a different way, you know, by removing the things that we all assume. Now, another thing that they say about Paul Anderson, and I am not 100% sure on this, but obviously they've got something to back it up. Um, they're saying he's libertarian. Now, um, uh, I, I see that as a slur myself. <laughs> so it's possible. I still think, Jesse, I still think there's a difference between... Um, the the philosophical term libertarian and a I, practical libertarian. I hear I hear you I hear you loud and clear because okay. um, I would I align with you know Rand Paul amongst all of the uh, <laughs> congressional you know right and dudes. I think he's he's libertarian I think yeah yeah well but uh, it's or not, Ron Paul and Rand Paul on a lot of issues you know they're clearly right and everybody else is wrong or most everybody else is wrong. Um, over and over and over and again, and then of course they also do stupid ideas and you know. But on a number of issues, clearly libertarianism is a much better system than you know neoliberalism or neoconservatism or a whole bunch of other stuff. But in here in this book, uh, I didn't find a ton of libertarian ideas other than maybe this idea of you know women uh, can do sleep with who they want. Right, and that shouldn't be a, well, a shame. But I felt a lot more religious stuff going on, even though it's not, you know, there's very few Catholics and Protestants on board the ship that are mentioned as being such. Right? 
it's yeah, it's interesting. You know, they had. I mean, with only fifty people, how could you not be communist? You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> we all share everything. We've got to. Uh, right. We're in a we're in a confined space. Everything we do affects everybody. Right. Um, there's just no room, you know, to be libertarian. And, <laughs> and I think and I think that Paul Anderson's politics, as as is reflected in what he put in his fiction, became more libertarian and more more right we're drifting over time because i mean the, the psycho the psychotechnic league though the one you're that the one that you have there uh scott is much more left than a lot of the stuff in the post-zillotechnic league especially uh the 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 traders and a uh, boat of a million years the main character is very 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 much a libertarian mm-hmm. it's just like yeah he, the government government leave me the hell alone sort of libertarian mm-hmm. and so, so I think I think there was an evolution of his politics over time, I and mean, we're at a point here with Tau Zero where we're de- we're not in that real that phase of his uh, political development, mm. and that's why you don't see it in a novel. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I, interesting. I, I, it is. Uh, you make a very good point, though, Scott. It's very hard to imagine a libertarian generation starship. <laughs> it, would, it would fail. It would fail miserably. Mm. <laughs> but but that's what I would say is what's going on with our planet. We've got a generation starship that orbits one star and mm-hmm. you know and some people are like i can spew as much as i want and then i mean I, the other thing that's so interesting is i believe i believe that this concept of uh libertarianism is almost exclusively confined to the united states there's there's almost no canadian libertarians as far as i can tell and i don't hear any europeans going on and on about it um it, it, it seems to be a unique reaction to the circumstances of the United States. And it's interesting because Poole Anderson is American, but he also has a kind of, um, you know, uh, Scandinavian Ophelia, right? He's mm. he, he's always thinking about how they do things or did things in in Northern Europe. And it, it it's he doesn't break out of his American completely there's an american character on here and he's the rude guy right yeah um there's a canadian on board who just has a distinction of being canadian <laughs> that's it um <laughs> yeah. and then there's you know some representatives of other areas of the earth but it it's like who's funding this spaceship um sweden is yeah. yeah, it's kind of like the world, I guess. Yeah, but Sweden, right? It's yeah, yeah, and yeah, because sweet. Yeah, that's the impression that I got anyway. And I guess I'd need to reread that opening to make certain. But no, 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 because because since Sweden is the cultural and dominant uh, country on Earth, because it got put in that position, it can harness the resources for these spaceships. And it's mentioned that this is a large percentage of the world GDP, but it's basically Sweden is building the thing. But the world, a lot of the world, is contributing to it. Mm-hmm. It said that in the text. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they've got the international screw, right? There's a German engineer and uh, yeah, there's, there's a Russian and yeah, the, there's it's, a Chinese the, uh, somebody, a space a paleontologist. Is that right? I can't remember. No, no, it might be a biologist. No, uh, paleontologist doesn't get to do much work on this. <laughs> not or, much stuff to dig no well, yeah. but probably lots of uh, lots to work in those uh dragon bones they find on their their new planet mm-hmm. um it, it doesn't get a name at the end does it um i don't think they i, actually I think it just says their new world 
Um, but for some reason, I, I have this premonition that they would, at the end, be standing on a hill. And they I think they actually are standing on a hill at the end as well. And mm. I was thinking why that would be that I was right. Uh, well, I didn't notice I was right until I was like, I have a feeling we're going to see the last scene. Yeah, They're going to be standing on a hill that, looking down at a valley. Um, and it's like that which is spread out before you, these are your blessed lands or something like that. Right? Up, up, reading from out, To Outlive Eternity, because I have that up and I don't have Tazir up. On a hill that viewed wide across a beautiful valley, a man stood with his woman. Here was right. not Newark. That's exactly the end. That would have been too much to expect. The river far below them was tinted gold with tiny life and ran through meadows whose many froth growth was blue. Trees looked as if they were feathered in shades of the same color, and the wind set certain blossoms in them to chiming. It bore scents which were like cinnamon and iodine and horses, and nothing for which men had a name. On the opposite side lived stark palisades, black and red, fanged with crags, where flashed the horns of a glacier. I mean, I mean, you, you get... I mean, isn't that poetically beautiful? Like, yeah. oh my God, I want to be yeah, there. Yeah, the ending's so. the best part part of the book, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, dragons flying. You got this beautiful landscape. Yeah, send me a trip there. <laughs> While I can still see it. But you notice better. that notice that the the question of all these existential worries just disappear as soon as we've got this. We've got well, a new well, land but, to explore. Well, well. Well, consider what was the whole purpose of the whole ship in the first place, to colonize another planet. And here they have at the end, yeah. they're doing what they originally set out to do. So I can I can buy the the existential angst melting away because they're finally no, I'm doing saying what it, they were it is gone. It's not, you don't even have to buy it. It's gone for me, right? Oh, all I was just talking about the characters. I'm feel, yeah, but I'm feeling what they're feeling when they're feeling it in the book, even though he's I, I, he's not the great greatest character characterizer i got what he was doing and you know when they're spending time in the uh sensory deprivation tank and they're sleeping too much and and you know they're they're practicing uh stuff just to make themselves tired uh i i i got what was going on there and i could feel that you know existential angst like what and i was thinking what is the purpose of of existence if you're not gonna be going anywhere you can't just watch videos all day you know you can't watch old movies that's no way to live and that is no way to live and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. when they get to their destination uh which they picked out and you know they they want a certain number of resources right including uh heavy metals right so they're not saying we're not gonna we're not gonna uh, not have nuclear war right we're not gonna not have nuclear war because they could have chosen to have a planet without that, right? Without uranium and all that stuff. Um, and then they get to their destination. They look down, and it's not they lived happily ever after, but rather a new beginning, right? And that mm-hmm. a new beginning is all you need to get rid of that existential angst. It's like, what is the purpose? What is my purpose of existence? Here, here you go, bud. There it is. Look down this hill. That's the purpose. Mm. You got all these possibilities, right? Yes, indeed. I, I agree. I, I, I wanna. I always come back to this point. One of the amazing things about the Fallout games, right, mm-hmm. is you you get this setup. You, you you're in the uh, the vault, and you as soon as you come out in in Fallout Three, it was it was spectacularly true, right? And Fallout Four does the exact same thing. Um. 
uh, I guess New Vegas, and there's another one that's coming. Right? You come out of the vault, so you're out of this limited space where your entire reality is determined by, uh, first of all, a pre-scripted program, right? That the game has. Uh, you know, you're gonna meet these characters. They're all in this these rooms, and it's really set up so that you are prepared for the outside world, right? So you are out of control. It's like your parents are telling you and taking you where to go in each scene. And then you step out into the new world and you look around and in 360 degrees, north, south, east, and west, you can go anywhere you want. That sense of a new beginning was stunning to me. When I, when I was playing the game, I'm like, oh my God, it isn't like one of these you know, Call of Duty games where you've got a, a sense of freedom and then you hit an invisible wall and you can't go any farther, right? Now, there is an actual invisible wall in the Fallout games, right? It's it's uh, way out out there, past the, you know, past the horizon where you can see. But mm-hmm. it, that sense of I can go any direction and I have my own, my own fate in my own hands and I can see ahead of me, that totally engages you in a way that very few games can. Right, it's not mm-hmm. like any other kind of experience because it is like getting on, you know, being presented with the new Earth. It's like, well, there could be dragons on the other side of the thing. Literally, there are monsters, right? And there are friendly people and funny stories and all sorts of things available to you. And you you can't recapture that except by playing another game, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You can't recapture like the, the next game you could play, going to the next planet. And that being locked in a vault is like being locked in a spaceship. That's why the endings works really well in a book that has a sort of boring start. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Scott. And I'm Paul. And we're going to do a a mini new releases, recent arrivals. Oh, maybe just new releases. Or no, maybe just (laughs) recent arrivals, because we got some books, and we're sitting here, and we're talking about the books we we got. Um, First one I got is Dragon Shadow, a Hearthstone novel by Ellie Catherine White. I tweeted a a picture of this, and I spent a lot of time with those... um, uh, emojis that are on Twitter, you know, trying to find one that showed a dragon and a shadow. So <laughs> I thought it was really <laughs> clever. Nobody cared. Um, but uh, I, I was I was looking at this, and I also tweeted something else about it. Uh, the The cover says Pride, Prejudice, Monsters. No one said marriage to a dragon rider would be easy. And I was I was looking at this, and this is a um, it it is it's uh, Pride and Prejudice with dragons, basically. But then um, I was looking through it, and um, I found a segment where there's a big, long poem in the middle of the thing. And I remember when I was a kid how I hated those sections of books. And now, like, that's the only interesting part of the book for me. (laughs) (laughs) I read the whole, I started reading the whole poem, and I'm like, wow, this is really fun. Um, Oh, yeah, it's like a three-page poem here. It's like, wow. Isn't that weird how your uh, interest changes your... You're still reading the same books? 
Yeah. So, yeah. You know, what you read for inside of a book changes. Like, no, I want more of that now. I yeah. didn't like it before, but now, yeah, give me more. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. You got one, Scott? I do. I actually have three. Um, let's see. Uh, the, the three are in, in a nutshell. One is called Maze Master by Kathleen O'Neill Gear. And then the second one's called Halcyon, a thriller by Rio Ewers. And then the last one is called, yeah, the last one is called Cold Fall Wood by Stephen Seville. I know, I I know Stephen Seville writes, has written Warhammer 40K, so that's how I know who he is. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it looks like, you know, the top blurb on it is from Booklist, and it says, Perfect for fans. Oh, this is a different book, though. This is for a book called Glass Town. But perfect for fans of Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere or Clive Barker. Seville's highly original story is extremely engaging, fast-paced read. That's for a, a novel called Glass Town. But this one is Cold Fall Wood. And uh, it says, Stephen Seville returns with a gritty new fantasy about a reluctant hero combating a forgotten god. So, my last got that. Point is um, I, I've got some other ones recently, but I've been uh, tempting my students with them. I say, hey, you read this. You write me a review. I'll do something with it. <laughs> um, but the, the only two I have in, on hand, uh, the second one here is Ahab's Return or The Last Voyage by Jeffrey Ford. Um, and that name sounds familiar to me, Jeffrey Ford. Je- but... Je- 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 Jeffrey Ford yeah, Jeffrey... is an award-winning fantasy author. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's really top-notch. Oh, I should have sent this to you because I, I, I love... I love Moby Dick, but I'm uh, pretty sure there's no sequel <laughs> available uh, at the end of it, given, uh, you know, we, we get, you know, he's in South America and and this. Anyways, the plot of this is Ahab is not dead and neither is Ishmael, but we knew Ishmael wasn't dead. Um, and so they go on another voyage um, and um, it's written differently. I, I was looking at it quite deeply. Um, just to see, you know, like, what, what how is this, um, it's set in the same universe, but it, the style's not that of, um, of Moby Dick, for sure. Uh, but it's also, they sent it to, to me in hardcover. I don't usually get hardcovers. Do you guys usually yeah, get hardcovers? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was about to say, do you, I mean, you get books that are not audiobooks? Yeah, well, they send them in the mail, right? So, um. Right, right. I, I thought you just got all audiobooks. No, these are all I mean, paper I, books, yeah. Oh wow! You get I did not all these years. I did not realize you actually got paper books. I just thought you just got a ton of audiobooks because you know you're the SF audio guy. I, yeah. I, I I am in I am suddenly enlightened. And yeah, well, I don't uh, I don't have e, I don't do anything with ebooks. So I, I I do do paper books. You know, it's just oh, um. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I get I, I I get paper books nearly every week. It's not every cool. week, but. But because I'm, I'm looking, I can spy them from where I'm sitting right now. Like World Shaper by Edward Willett. From an award, award-winning author comes the first book in a new Portal Fantasy series in which one woman's powers open the way to a labyrinth of new dimensions. Wow. I think that's cool. About, it's interesting that the Portal Fantasy has become a Portal term. I, I never hadn't heard that term until uh, about two years ago or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's been portal fantasies, although not under that name since the 1980s and earlier. Yeah. I, I mean, oh yeah, I mean, technically Narnia is a portal fantasy, so there you go. go <laughs> literally, through. literally, they go into a 
right? Closet. They go into a wardrobe and come out in another yeah. world. That's kind of like right but, on the tin. But uh, Heinlein uh, did one too. We just did a show on it recently. As I'm blanking on the name. Glory Road, you mean? Say again? Glory Road, you mean? Glory Road, yeah. That's a portal fantasy. I mean, they don't... Uh, actually, there is a door, right? I, I, I mean, te- te- technically, the the Earth form of portal fantasy... Oh, God, this could be a whole different show. Is really a young person, most surprisingly often female, winds up going into another world where they make a, make a difference... That's that's the traditional portal fantasy in its in its un, most unadulterated form. I mean, Glory Road is cross dimensional, but ge- generally it's like young person goes to another world and uh, has a destiny, like 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 this one, like oh, one woman's powers open the way to a labyrinth and new dimension. No, no offense on Edward, the book actually looks interesting. I may actually read it, but yeah, this is actually this is straight up portal fantasy, and that's still being. That was Narnia, and that's still be written today. I'm thinking of, like, say, Foz Meadows and Action of the Stars, where a young woman in Australia winds up following a world walker into another world and get, winds up getting wrapped up into the politics and intrigues there. And so, yeah, it's it's a very it's a very uh, it's a very persistent strain of fantasy that is coming into vogue. And again, because you know all these things come in uh, come in voices like a fugue. They mm. they fall out of favor. They come back in favor, just like Grim Dark is the big voice in epic epic fantasy, and I think it's starting to decline now a bit. So that's how that's how fantasy goes. And right, as right. usual, H.G. Wells invented it. And there's a a story um, by him H. called Wells. The Door in the Wall, yeah. which is about a green door that appears every once in a while, and the guy goes through, and in one day he goes through and never comes back. Sort of. Sort of. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, right. I, I could. Uh, yeah, I, I got plenty. I mean, we could spend all day talking <laughs> about all the other books I've gotten lately. But perhaps for the sake of our readers, I will not start uh, listing off the giant pile of books I can. Well, see we don't here. have time. Apparently, Scott. We don't have time. <laughs> we got to talk <laughs> about the one book we read. Yeah, so let's talk about that. All right, let's get started. You ready? Yes. Okay. So we're starting over? Okay. Uh, well, we're going to do a new show. Huh? <laughs> oh, I got you. Okay. So that's like a, that was a mini episode. That was a mini, a mini thing I'm going to stick in the end. Um, that, that was a mini sode. Yeah, a mini sode. Have right. you read The Twilight Pariah, Paul? No. By Jeffrey Ford? Okay. I have that what? on my. No, I, I've, read, I've, I've read a bunch of his short stories, but I haven't read that. Okay. I've got it on my shelf here, on my to read shelf. It's a. Novelette or novella? About the same size as All Systems Red. Yeah, that's a novella. Yeah. Another tour, tour paperback uh, novella size thing. Oh yeah, it came out last year. There it is. I must have gotten a copy. Not back. It must be. It might be in the pile of books I got. Those are because I get a lot from Tor.com, and that's. Wow, those are gorgeous books i love i mean i love how they look all of them somebody's playing with their microphone sorry i i just moved it and i'll stop touching it stop touching it stop touching yeah i think you you have a um what do you call that uh snowball right snowball yeah yeah you need to get a boom oh get a boom booms are awesome can you put a snowball in a boom you can put a snowball on a boom all right 
I'm pretty sure. Um, I got Good. Yetis on Boom. Well, I want you to boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> you have a Yeti boom? I have two Yeti booms. Double Yeti boom. I love my Yeti booms. Is that yeah. so you can have a guest? No, in, it's because I have house? two computers that are exactly the same setup. So one computer gets one thing, oh. the other gets the other thing. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I use them in games and stuff as well. Gotcha. But also, it's good to have a backup, you know. You right. have a backup yet with the boom. That's for you sure. You have everything the same. You can't go wrong. Yep. That's the theory. All right. Mm-hmm. Here we go.